Well, it's Friday, and everybody knows that Friday is time to go inside EMS. I want to thank you for joining us, and I hope you had a great EMS week as we close the week again on, uh, you know, giving uh, EMS strong, right? We want to go ahead and give a pat on the back to all our EMS providers. We were kind of talking about that on Wednesday. And this episode of the Inside EMS podcast is sponsored by Boundtree Medical. Learn how Boundtree can help you save minutes and lives at Boundtree.com. And here he is, my good friend, uh, the one we call Kelly Grayson. Kelly Grayson, how was the rest of your week, Kelly? It was good, man. It was good. I'm, I'm playing the uh, the Tiger King EMS Week drinking game, and um, uh, I'm polluted. <laughs> I don't know what that I'm, means. I mean, I see all this Tiger King I'm stuff. I, I have no said, idea what that is. Oh, my God. Sobolero, you have not watched Tiger King? I've not watched any. Oh. I don't even know what it is. <laughs> okay, look, look. You ever complained about a rubbernecker at an EMS scene? Yes. You know, the, the, okay. Watch it. You'll get to feel like a rubbernecker because no matter how bad you think it gets, it gets worse. <laughs> and you just cannot avert your eyes from the, from the, the pure spectacle of trailer park redneck methamphetamine. Oh my God! So, it's, what is uh, it like a a Netflix thing or something? Uh, yeah, it's a Netflix series. You need to watch it, Tiger King. And, How uh, and is it like a long series? Netflix. I don't like to. I don't like to get caught up in series it's, though. It's, no, it's seven. It's seven episodes. It's a documentary, a, a, a mini documentary, but uh, it's it's seven episodes. Just binge watch it one night, man. And man I gotta tell you, I mean, I'm gonna watch one, and if I can't get through it, I ain't watching anymore. How about this that? Is, Next best thing to watching an episode of Hoarders to make you feel better about your own life choices. <laughs> you know, you have a way, man. You've got. I'm not so screwed up after all. I could be a cast member on Tiger King. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny, man. All right. So anyway, I don't know where to go with that, but uh, you know. So we're going to finish our EMS week, and again, everybody, pat on the back for the work that you're doing. You know, we kind of talked about it on Wednesday that we appreciate everybody out there and really setting the standards for others to follow at a time where everybody uh, really kind of needs to give some great uh, recognition to you folks who are the best EMS professionals, who are the best professionals in the world, I think. But uh, we got a guest today. He is coming to us out of Manatee County, Florida, Tim Nowak. He is the Assistant Chief of Special Operations. He is also an EMS One columnist. And Tim, I want to thank you for finally getting here. We've been trying to get him on the show, Kelly, forever. Tim, I want to thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Absolutely, guys. I appreciate it. And uh, like I mentioned, I'm a longtime listener and first-time caller. So I, I really appreciate being here. Amazing. Welcome to the show. That's right. Thank he, you. He, he read that just like we wrote it, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, yeah, just like we wrote it. So, Tim, you know, one of, the, that's right. so one of the things that we wanted to talk to you about is, you know, Manatee County uh, EMS, they do great work. And certainly they have a great coverage area. Because they get to hit a lot of those great Florida beaches. But, um, you know, you kind of came to us as we were talking about all the COVID coverage and really kind of the community paramedicine focus on how we're doing our business and how we're doing it a little, uh, little differently. I had the opportunity to uh, chat with your chief a long time ago about your program and was very impressed with how you guys were running it and, you know, the kind of the things that you were trying to do. But now, when we start to think about this from the pandemic side, 
I would really like to know, I guess, my first question to you before we get into the specifics of how the community paramedics were working within this pandemic, what was your setup like? I mean, so as you're sitting around the table now and as you're trying to plan what this is going to look like, I mean, how, what did that planning, I mean, how did you get to the point of where you are today before it even started? Yeah, it, you know, that's a good question. And, and I'll be honest. So I, I kind of got into the organization at a perfect but awkward time. So my, my first day of uh, actually jumping in with the organization was like day two of the EOC being activated. And, and so I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention uh, like Chief Jimmy Crutchfield, Deputy Chief Sean Dwyer. Those were instrumental people with getting a lot of this rolling before I even showed up and, and got the organization and, and really did a lot of awesome legwork uh, with the organization to keep it running smooth in our, our support services staff. So, you know, I, I think something that kind of helped us out early on was uh, the preparedness from Ebola, I think, worked out in our favor where we were fortunate to have a lot of the, the Tyvex leaves, the Tyvex suits, the coveralls, the extra N95s, and even surgical masks. So we, we were fortunate to have a cache of supplies that was already there. And we were able to very rapidly upstock our rigs, uh, even looking at some of our numbers and, and seeing, you know, 200 masks going out in one day. So rapidly upstock our rigs to get them functioning. Uh, and that's every ambulance, the CP units, and, and you name it. So our, our especially with the, the community paramedic rigs that are out uh, on the streets, on a daily basis, they were anywhere from one or two community paramedics floating throughout the county and handling a, a number of different calls, uh, being available for 911 on the back end, but also handling their patient load. And our RCPs typically have a patient load of about 30 patients that they cycle through about 60-day cycle. And uh, we knew that once COVID hit and once we started to see the scaling back of interactions, the social distancing, the assessing patients from a distance or even the doorway, uh, we knew that the workload was going to end up changing. And as a result, uh, since the CPs were already in a free-floating rig of their own, their own kind of chase vehicle, and, and we were uh, also fortunate to have uh, free-floating squads as well. So paramedics that were in chase cars, more or less, throughout the county, we were able to immediately repurpose them and work in conjunction with our dispatch center through like a, a, a non-emergency line, a 311 call center as opposed to a 911 call center, and get these folks uh, forward-facing right away to screen patients and even determine whether or not uh, the patients would need an ambulance or if they met COVID criteria. And I think that was a lot of the scare at first was so many patients were calling, flooding the system, that we had to immediately work on our mechanism to determine, did you meet criteria and do you want to transport or did you meet criteria or not? And are, are you calling just because you don't know what to do? And I think that was a, 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 big, a big issue for everyone early on. Tim, I have a, a actually a two-parter question. Um, sure. One um, is is Manatee County uh, are, are they one of the pilot programs participating in the ET three uh, project? Uh, we are not. No. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, next question. You you said that your 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 workload and your your uh, operational tempo was was going to wind up changing under uh, the pandemic crisis. Um, did you see your your CCP trucks um, 
take on an additional workload of, of new patients or where your was their existing workload just um, you know their existing uh, roster of, of uh, community paramedic patients um, just needing more care? You know, I, I think a lot of the patients that we had uh, still are on our roster, mm-hmm. but there was a, a bit of a halt uh, just because of knowing that we weren't going to be able to do the same face-to-face interaction that we had. Mm-hmm. You know, I think one maybe upside of COVID is that this is now kind of uh, expediting the need for telehealth and yeah. remote medical um, monitoring devices. So I know that certainly has expedited our need for it and we're actively working on that right now and and actually working into a a grant pilot program for june so uh, across the nation i think that has certainly helped to expedite that whole process um so the patients that we had to answer the question going into it kind of got put on a halt uh we had some phone conversations to let them know that we're still here and uh, as the cps got introduced into this screening role initially uh, we knew over time that, you know, burnout is, is a reality. And I think for any provider out there that constantly would be doing this day in, day out, that, uh-huh. that's a reality to address. So really, once we start get, uh, getting into the May time frame, we knew that this was, you know, a solid month into it. We had to start transitioning these folks out and get them back into the full swing of the CP role. And, th- and that's where we're at right now is that transition phase, still having our squads, our individual paramedic units out there uh, kind of roaming and handling these calls. Um, but yeah, we did not want to lose sight of what the program was already gaining traction and speed and headway on. In Manatee County, Tim, did uh, with uh, did you see a, a spike in patient volume with, with COVID-19 and, and, uh, handling that did uh who handled the the extra workload uh was it was it more your your regular squads or was it your community paramedics uh yeah you know there was an initial massive influx within the system and i think what really helped our county out especially early on was that non-emergent line so we were able to direct patients or or uh uh, citizens that, that just didn't know what to do or if they uh-huh. met criteria, we were able to direct them to that without flooding the system and flooding the, the need for sending out an ambulance. Gotcha. So that, I think, greatly helped out. Um, and, and that initially spiked the, the call volume for the community paramedics, spiked the call uh-huh. volume for the squads because they were very forward-facing with getting to the patients and screening first and, uh-huh. and kind of going from you know call to call to call. Uh, we, you know, we've since seen that decline down, which is good. Um, and, you know, I think us, just like the rest of the country, we've seen a pretty significant decline in actual transports. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's been yeah. affecting in that way. Yeah. Um, the worried well have, uh, have, have stopped calling for an ambulance unnecessarily. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Experiencing that as well. And, and, you know, we've certainly noticed there were a couple of times looking back that we had some surge moments where, uh, we would get a, a full nursing home, for example, that uh, found, you know, positive results. And, you know, that's due to the, the testing. They would finally get the results and notice that 10 patients, 15, 20 patients uh, became positive. And as a result, I think in a sense, some of them became confused. Did we send these patients out? Did we not? And that resulted wow. in some some influx situations and surge moments for us. Um, but the the crews that we have in the field uh, really did just a, a stellar job 
of, of adapting, overcoming, handling the calls, adapting to the needs and the changes for PPE. And, and even, even interestingly enough, with me going through my own onboarding process as a chief officer, uh, I, I still have been jumping on the ambulance to get you know medically cleared just like any other paramedic. And uh, I have had a couple of instances where I've got to feel the, the pain of having to suit up in the uh, balmy Florida heat. And uh, yeah. you know, so it's, uh, it's certainly warranted to give a lot of kudos to the, the crews for really handling a significant amount of workload and just a change in the workload. Yeah. Very interesting. So I, you know, I think that as we go through this process now, you know, I think you've kind of laid it out, um, you know, really, really well as to how you got to where you are today. And I'm going to take a quick break here, Tim, but I want to come back on the other side to ask you, uh, you know, to kind of find out what have you learned? I mean, so as you're going through this process, what have you learned even before we get into what are you seeing with patients? So before we do that, as your partner in EMS for over 40 years, Bountree has made it their goal to provide you with more than just emergency medical supplies and equipment. Bountree partners with you to create efficiencies within your agency, streamline your operations, and help you find ways to make the most out of your budget. Your dedicated account manager will be your true partner, acting as your personal advisor to help you determine which solution is right for you and your specific needs. To find out more or to set up a new account, visit Bountree.com or call 800 800- So with us is Tim Nowak. He's from Manatee County uh, EMS in Manatee County, Florida. And Tim, I think you've laid it out for us, man, exactly what's going on down there and what you were doing to set up and how things are kind of flowing. And one of the things that I think I've asked a lot of the leaders who have come on is the, uh, you know, what, what's the lessons that you learned? I mean, we, we didn't know what we didn't know at that time, right? So as you're going through the process, and really as you're kind of learning the, the system as you're, uh, you know, kind of new to the, you know, to uh, getting into uh, the system, I mean, what was the aha moments? What were the learning lessons? What were you not prepared for that kind of uh, tapped you on the shoulder and said, hello? Yeah, you know, some of, the, some of the biggest lessons learned that I think the organization and certainly myself that we've all learned is uh, not necessarily stuff that wasn't done, but really just the heightened awareness of, yes, this absolutely is vital or important. And, and I think things like collaboration and communication and just the preparedness have, have been forever changed within the industry as a result of this. Um, the, the forward and behind-the-scenes communication with the hospitals for, you know, what really, what can you handle? And, you know, we think back to the MCI scenarios where, you know, someone calls the hospital and how many reds can you take, how many yellows, how many greens? Uh, I think this has been kind of put as an example of that where, all right, how many how many patients can you handle? What's your bed count? Uh, are, what's your process? Are you isolating patients? Uh, how, how does the actual workflow of bringing in a patient change now as a result of this? So that, that collaboration, I think, has been forever changed for all of us as a result. Uh, the communication certainly is interesting, where uh, immediately uh, we started integrating in uh, like Zoom communications or WebEx or you know some whatever platform you might have, but we started getting in and trying to communicate with our crews as much as possible. And it really was interesting to see that the, the crews want to learn. They want to know more. And not only hear like, okay, not only hear 
that okay today is the plan today is you know this is what we're doing as far as the ppe rollout or these are the new cdc guidelines but they actually wanted to hear and see some of the numbers in the back end how many do we have uh, confirmed cases in the county how many deaths how many uh, patients are at this hospital what are the statistics what are the the volume rates so the the numbers that oftentimes we in administration focus on and hold tight and dear to us a lot of the crew members want to know the same stuff to get perspective. So we've been very uh, open with trying to communicate that and give the CDC guidelines, uh, validate those, validate what our processes are, and, and make sure that that ability to ask questions is available. So uh, right now we're doing uh, twice a week, Monday and Friday, uh, open communications with the crews. Uh, other crews that are off-duty are welcome to just chime in as well and, and listen in. So that is, has uh, really changed for us and really changed, I think, for a lot of organizations and is a good, is a good best practice to take out of this. And, and certainly from the preparedness aspect, um, you know, collaborating with emergency management and public health and a lot of other organizations, you know, I think we were fortunate where being a municipal agency, a lot of that stuff is built into the infrastructure already. So it's just a matter of, uh, for us, it was a matter of walking across the hallway and, you know, going into the emergency management uh, section or going into the EOC. And and for others, that may not be logistically or, or feasible uh, physically. So having that relationship built and being prepared um, for the next time this happens uh, or the next big one, I, I think those are certainly things on our radar for the future. And as we, you know, look into what are you know our burn rates as far as using PPE? Um, do we need to up uh, up stock on this for the future? Uh, let alone try to recoup for it now. Uh, the preparedness side, I think, uh, is is one of those areas that if agencies don't have it built into their hierarchy or their organizational structure, I think this is a great lesson that we absolutely need that. Yeah, I find it ironic that it, it took a global pandemic to actually get our healthcare system to to function as a system, you know, uh, and actually employ the the communication and collaboration and coordination uh, that that you have managed with your hospitals. Uh, uh, hey, it only took what you know a, a worldwide health threat to to make it happen, uh, but I suppose we should be happy that it is. Um, moving forward, Tim, what do you, how optimistic do you feel about the viability of your community paramedicine program? The reason I'm asking is, is, you know, during the COVID-19 pandemic, we have seen so many of the tenets of, of mobile integrated health and community paramedicine really be adopted, uh, on a, a grand scale by, people who are really unprepared to do it you know we're talking about non-ed transport destinations and and treatment in place and referral and and screening and and those kind of things and and uh all of the things that we traditionally would think that would be the role of a community paramedic and and you know uh non-community paramedic uh, squads have had to had to to do that sort of thing as well uh, I don't know if your paramedic units uh, uh, have had to, to kind of take that role and if the, the lines between your community paramedics and, and your regular ALS trucks has kind of blurred a little bit. 
but uh, give us your your perspective on on how you guys uh, face that and and uh, how well that sort of thing has worked at your agency and how confident you feel moving forward about how well community paramedicine is going to serve you in Manatee County. Yeah, that's a great question. Great points. Um, I'm, I'm very optimistic moving forward. And, and I think uh, one of the reasons I can say that quite confidently is because with the established relationship that we have and, and being within one organization, um, we were able to utilize very rapidly the community paramedics, alter the role, uh, tackle this very quickly uh, and very forcefully head on to not put that burden on the 911 crews because business is still happening. 911 calls are still happening. And had those crews uh, had to deal with a lot of the screening upfront aspect, I think it would have led to even more burnout overall. So being able to rapidly reallocate the role of the community paramedic, but then also learn from that to know that, okay, you know, we, we can afford to, you know, put things on halt for a little bit, but not too long because we still have uh, a duty of responsibility to the patients that we have in the program. And we still need uh-huh. to make sure that the, the wellness side of it is there uh, for them. So I, I think it's helped us to learn what some of our limitations are and, and to what extent we can put things on pause, but also to what extent we absolutely need to keep going forward. And, and I know certainly that we're at that point where we have realized that, yes, we need to keep going forward and we, we still need this screening role um, and making sure that people are donning and doffing uh, yeah. their PPE appropriately and then disposing of, of it appropriately. So that's where our squads have fit in. So I, I think from this, from our agency and, and uniquely fitting into my role with special operations, uh, I think that this will help to create somewhat of the vision going forward where the special operations role uh, integrating in some sort of hazmat, hasbio, uh, relationship or positioning or at least more training associated with it and, and you know coming from the hospital side prior to this uh, you know the hospitals have built in uh, hospital first receiver type courses where you know if you have a contaminated patient how do you do this what you know building up with PPE and I think that all of us could, could certainly attest as educators that that is just not focused on in school because we don't have the time to do it even so I think this this will forever change how education is done, forever change how much we focus on BSI, scene safe, and not just doing the jazz hands, you know, and, and walking through the scenario. Uh, and certainly from the CP side, it's shown that these are very flexible people, that especially when it comes to talking to patients, reassuring them that indeed it is okay for you to stay home, that is, I don't know if counterproductive is the right word, but it's counterintuitive to what the average 911 medic is. You know, we're used to just, let's bring the patient, let's get going. That's all, yeah. Yeah, so so having that mindset as the CP of, okay, I got this, uh, we can do this. Let's set up, let's talk about a plan, let's stay home, and let's, uh, let's make sure that you're comfortable doing this. You got some food, you got, you know, uh, a way to help someone, you know, get here to check up on you. Uh, you're able to get around or with the lockdown stuff. Uh, you've got someone that can at least get these resources for you. Wonderful. Th- those people have that mindset and the resources already built in that uh, the next time that this happens, uh, I think that we'll be even more prepared uh, because we got to prove the concept that this gotcha. this mindset does work. 
Yeah, that that's a that's a perfect segue into the next uh, the next question I was going to ask you is, is how confident do you feel uh, in going forward of your community paramedics being system gatekeepers rather than just you know uh, managing a, a roster of chronic patients. Um, uh, when new patients come into the system, they can adapt on the fly, um, you know, manage that surge capacity, uh, decide in the future uh, um, that, uh, yes, you need to go to the hospital. No, you don't need to go to the hospital and, and, and take a broader role in uh, being a, uh, a, both a resource manager and, and a, a gatekeeper for the healthcare system. You feel confident, more confident now uh, that you've, you've seen them put all that, that kind of stuff into place? Absolutely. And, you know, coincidentally, while I was, while all this was going on, uh, we were in the process of interviewing and then now onboarding a social worker. So adding in that component, I think will even, will make us even stronger going forward. And, you know, especially as, as part of the new leadership team for a community paramedicine program, um, I, I'm kind of looking at the entire program as part of a bigger picture, uh, more of a holistic picture of, of community risk reduction. And in situations like this, where we have a national pandemic and the workflow has changed, the way that we do things have changed, the uh, call volumes, everything has changed with what we're doing. Uh, We've got to be able to find a way to uh, focus on the outreach, the wellness, and the navigation of these patients uh, in in multiple different spotlights. And especially the, the, the patients or the clients that we go to that you know, had some symptoms, but were stable, could stay home, providing that reassurance, but also making sure that they were okay to bunker down. Um, or the patients that were indeed sick, getting through the screening, changing or altering the care. And I think that probably was one of the hardest things that any agency has has had to experience. And it, it was certainly frustrating for me being an orienting paramedic, where, you know, we've got patients where I would have loved to have done CPAP. I would have loved to have intubated this patient, but we can't. And being able to now uh, understand that much better and prepare for that for the future, uh, I think with the street paramedics, uh, those are focal points. With the community paramedics, uh, their skill set is a focal point. And, uh, you know, for any agency that uh, wants to be prepared for the future, I think we've all recognized that. And those are the, the things that we need to take to heart and build the numbers, build the case for what we need to do moving forward operationally, administratively, um, and, and just as a community focusing on how we provide a service uh, as an agency. Great thoughts, Tim, and it's, it's certainly encouraging to, to see that the, the uh, components of community paramedicine and mobile integrated health are a, a workable uh, thing even in, in uh, unexpected situations like a global pandemic. It, it gives me hope uh, uh, for the viability of community paramedicine and, and uh, fee-for-service rather than fee-for-transport going forward. But hey, that's what we think. We'd like to hear what you think. Is your community paramedicine program, uh, how is it adapted to dealing with life during the COVID uh, pandemic. Uh, are your regular ALS 911 units or even your BLS squads, are they starting to take more of a community paramedicine role uh, due to the, the exigent circumstances we have before us now? We'd like to hear your thoughts and how you're dealing with the, the current crisis at the show at ems1.com. And for myself, 
co-host Chris Sebolero and Tim Nowak, our guest from Manatee County, Florida. Thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We hope you guys had a great EMS week. Stay safe. We'll catch you next week.